All right, I'm recording. Tom, we are four and a half minutes in. I don't think it helps you if I tell you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Tom, if you've made it this far, this is the moment. And in fact, what's great is you said it like this is the moment where it gets serious. And then immediately we continued with frivolity because that's what we do. No, but from here on, I promise only reasonable and good tech talk. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Stephanie Carey. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey Chris, big important announcement first. Happy birthday. It's a very big, very important announcement. Thank you very much, Steph. <laughs> yes, I just shared that with the world. I hope that's fine. You did. Although when this comes out, it won't be my birthday. And they don't know what day we record this on. So now it's narrowed down to like a window of time. But uh, mm. still, I can maintain some secrecy here on the internet. <laughs> but thank you very much for the, the kind wishes. Yeah. How's your day been so far? Uh, it's been fine. Just been working. Did a normal thing. Had some family over yesterday. So that was nice. So did get to celebrate a bit uh, distantly, you know, sitting in chairs, little groups of two at relative distances from each other, because that's the world that we live in, at least for now. But yeah, it's been a fine day of work. Uh, actually been poking at something that has been interesting, surprisingly difficult, I guess is the way I would describe it. Uh, the app that I'm working on has lived under a bunch of different host names. So the company had a previous, like was a different brand name, has many years ago actually switched over the brand name up because the app, the Rails app that I'm working on is primarily an API endpoint. It doesn't really matter. Like no one's seeing that URL most of the time, but there's still a couple places. We do have a couple of web app sort of things going on. So places that people would see the URL. And my work of late has actually been introducing more and more of those. So I've been paying attention to the URL a lot more. And I realize that we do have this sort of scattering of different host names that the app is accessible through. And so I've taken on the work of canonicalizing that and making it so if you go to the app from any host name that isn't the preferred one, the canonical host name, uh, and I'm using canonical there because there's a gem rack canonical host, I think is the name of it. That is the thing that I think of whenever I'm doing this work. But yeah, so I want to redirect anything that isn't going to the primary host to the primary host, but I want to make sure that I hold on to query params. That's tricky. And I want to make sure I don't break any integrations. So in theory, anything like a Stripe webhook, I'm pretty sure Stripe will follow a redirect if we did that. But it's better if I don't. And there are other systems that I'm not certain of their behavior. It's like we're integrated with Help Scout and Google and Apple and Stripe and a bunch of other things can post to this app at a certain domain. And so for those ones, I'm trying to put them on an allow list. They can still use the old stuff. I'm trying to make sure I don't have infinite redirect loops. And I'm trying to test all of this. And that's where I've I've stopped at the end of the day and failed. Uh, everything else I got to working, but I am now failing at running the, particularly the feature specs are troubling me because they're trying to go to the real URL in the browser. I actually like did a, I, I turned off headless mode for the browser. I was like, why is this test not working? But uh, I, I turned it on so I could actually see where it was going. And I'm like, that looks like the app. Everything looks normal to me. It was actually just going to the real production app and then failing for that reason because it didn't have the data set up. Whoops. Wasn't doing anything destructive, so it was fine, but... Everything is fine. Are you someone that you can walk away from a failing test? Uh, yes, actually. I, I prefer to walk away from failing tests. Me too. Okay. Okay. I was kind of hoping that we'd be kindred spirits in this way, because I even love writing a failing test, and then that being the end of my day, so that way I have like this really great starting point for the next day. Is that the same reason that you do it as well, or enjoy it? Yes, 100%. In my mind, I attribute it to Ernest Hemingway 
who has like the adage or this is the thing that I hear attributed to him of walk away in the middle of a paragraph. So the next day when you walk up, if you're really in the middle of something and you've got a lot of energy and all the ideas are there, actually walk away at that point because now it's pretty clear. And so you can start the next day at a point of clarity where the work in front of you is very clear as opposed to like, I just got a blank page in front of me. This is terrible. What am I going to do? So the failing test is is my version of that. And I like it for that reason. So yes, very much the same. Although I'll be honest, I was hoping that we actually were going to find a disagreement here. You're going to be like, no, I have to clean up every test. Can't leave a failing test. And then we could have like, you know, had a thing, but we don't. <laughs> uh, yep. Nope. We'll just keep looking for that disagreement. Uh, but going back to the thing that you're testing, how has that been trying to test it? Has that been fairly easy? It sounds like it's been a bit difficult. It's been a while since I've had to, or if ever, that I've had to make that kind of change in application. So I'm curious, like the different steps you've taken, if there's any like interesting bits you've discovered along the way today. Yes, there are there are a couple of different, interesting is a strong word, but hopefully the people at home will think so, tricky, uh, subtle pieces. So the way that I'm configuring all of this, I'm actually not using the gem that I mentioned, Rack Canonical Hosts. And the reason I'm not is because we already have Rack Rewrite in the app. And as far as I understand it, Rack Canonical Host can only do redirect from this host name to this host name. But preservation of query params, I don't know if they have that built in or not. And more importantly, I have a case where I need to rewrite the path so there actually is, is one piece of the work that I'm doing here where we have some just normal things where we're like redirecting jobs to careers. That's just two different paths. And so we want to just 301 redirect at the lowest level that we can, not go into the rail stack, all that. But we have a more complex one where there's one of these React apps that I was working on that I've now ported back into the core Rails app. So it used to live, let's say, purchase.app.com is the subdomain that that thing lived on. But now it's moving into just app.com is our domain. And what we want to do is at the DNS level, change purchase.app.com to just point at the app, point at the Heroku instance specifically. So the C name for Heroku SSL. And then when we get a request in Rack Rewrite, I can say if it matches this subdomain, then do the redirect, but also add this path. So purchase.app.com gets redirected to app.com slash purchase. Got it. Yeah, that's a lot to follow in audio, so <laughs> it's not important if you don't get all the details, but there are little subtleties like that that I have to deal with. So dealing with that has been complicated, but Rack Rewrite has all the power that I need. Probably the most complicated thing is the way I'm configuring it is in a config initializer file. So because I'm using Spring, and I know I'm a fan of Spring, but here we are, uh, it keeps basically closing over that configuration, so I have to stop Spring every time I make a change in there. It's actually just really hard to poke at, and there's subtle order dependence. They get run in a certain order, and if you get redirected away, then you're done, so I have to make sure they're going in the like right order of precedence, and trying to set the environment. I can't actually do the normal sort of thing that I would want in a test, where the test encapsulates all of the data that I would want, so I want to say, like, given that the app host environment variable is set to this, and we get to this path, then we should be redirected to this other path. I can't do that because I can't change the environment variable since, again, config initializer, it's already been booted up in the Rails app, etc. So I've been bouncing around and uh, I use some lets in the spec because that just happened, which is weird for me, but here we are. I'm, I'm intrigued. What prompted the use of a let? I wanted access to the multiple different domains. So there's like the core domain, there's that purchase subdomain, there's the old domain, and I want all of those to eventually end up on the the main domain. And I wanted to reference those without having to constantly fetch them from the environment. And so I just said let, and then like app host, and then that's the env.fetch, that value. So it's really just aliasing at the top level. And I've, I've found that that's the place where I will reach for let's. It's not for any sort of data setup. It's basically just a local alias for a given value within the context of this spec. And that I'm fine with. 
I also had to put in a comment about where the magic values are coming from because I hate magic variables as well. So I have a comment and a bunch of lets, which are two things that are not part of my core brand, but here we are. You're just having a, a wild birthday, aren't you? Going completely off brand. If on your birthday you can't be a little bit wild, then when can you? <laughs> I, I get that in terms of the use of the Lex. So your alternative is to either have it in line for each setup or to then define a method and have it just return that string or that value that you wish. And then it feels a little much to define a method just to return a string. Although I guess that's what Let is doing under the hood. It's just making it a bit prettier and defining it at the top of the file. So I get you. But yeah, overall, it's going reasonably well. Although now the last thing that I'm struggling with is there's a feature spec that is failing because it's actually trying to go to production. Uh, whoops. And so I'm trying to figure out how for that feature spec, I tell it, no, don't do this behavior. So like either turn off the rack rewrite behavior for the feature spec or tell the feature spec, like, I, I don't know, I want to be able to test this behavior. That's important to me because this behavior is very subtle, easy to get wrong, and will really break the app in a tremendous way if I don't get it right. So it's important to me that I'm testing it, which means I can't just globally turn it off in test mode. I can't say like rack rewrite, don't do anything in test. But the feature specs, I, I'm, I've not yet figured out a way to make all of this stuff work together. So that'll be tomorrow morning's problem. I'm curious, is there an opportunity to use dependency injection? So you have a configuration that you want to be able to set, but could you pass that in to the thing that is then evaluating the host or domain that it needs to go to? So in test mode, you could use sort of like this fake configuration or this double configuration? Quite possibly. That that was what I was starting to think about, um, although not necessarily with the, the framing of dependency injection, although I think that's a, a good way to think about it because the config initializer runs once and then it's done. But the code inside of it is dynamic. So if I could have that dynamic code somehow rely on a more manipulatable piece of data in the system to struggle to find a word, then I think that could work. But I'm not sure which is the best opportunity there. And I also don't want to add too much code to this. This is a rare case where I'm concerned about performance optimization or like early performance optimization because every single request is going through this rack stack. And if like each layer of these checks has to do a bunch of work and a bunch of repetitive work, that feels like it's wasteful. But actually, I haven't done any sort of performance measurement or anything to know if it's relevant at all. Like if it's one millisecond, then it doesn't matter because everything else in the app takes way more than one millisecond so that one extra millisecond won't matter. But if it's like 10 or 15 milliseconds, it actually starts to add up and becomes a number that I care about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that sort of like framing would help in finding a way to test this, but I'm really intrigued to see what you figure out. Cool. Yeah. Well, I will certainly report back, but hopefully it'll be one of those things where I wake up tomorrow and I'm like, oh, I know the answer. Uh, I love those situations. Walk away from the problem for a while and then Eureka, but we will see and I will report back. But uh, yeah, how about you? Uh, what have you been up to on my birthday? Things are going well. I haven't had as wild of a day with lets and comments, so I feel like I need to step up my game. But then again, that's that's your right. It's reserved for you and your birthday today. <laughs> for me, I've been working further on that RSpec training course that we've been talking about and had a bit of a aha moment or a moment of clarity where we, Amanda and I, have been interviewing students that will be participating in the training course, which has been immensely helpful but a question that I had not asked myself until today is, who is this class for in terms of building a persona, someone to keep in mind? So as we're crafting content and deciding like how deep into the detail should we go versus high level, and then having that persona to return to, to think about, well, what would be best for this person? 
And maybe there's a couple of personas, which is the situation that we're in right now. So we've started reviewing the content with the individual that's helping us run the course and realized that we have probably gone a little too intermediate in terms of content. And they're excited for us to have the content be a little friendlier to junior developers as well. So we're now going to shift some of that content to make it junior friendly, but we also have a number of experienced engineers that are going to be in the course as well. So it's informing those experienced engineers that we still want them to find value in the class, but also letting them know that they may not be, or they are not the persona that we necessarily created the class for. And we do have two days of classes. So it may also be one of those, like the first day is more of a foundational level setting class. And then the second one is where we start to move into more complexity where some of the other engineers will gain benefit from. And one way that we've also discussed as how to frame the class for people that are on the more experienced level of engineering and using tests is to let them know, like, even though this may be something that you're very familiar with, it may be helpful to see how other people frame it and discuss it and teach it in terms of like code reviews and pairing with other people. So then they can also be individuals to go on and and teach their teammates as well. That's interesting. Always like finding that calibration point. And is this more intermediate? Is this more advanced? Uh, is this more for folks that are newer to all of it? And so, yeah, it's great that you're you're finding that calibration point, if nothing else. Although it does sound like it's a little bit tricky of like, well, we don't want to leave anyone behind, but we also don't want these people to be bored. And how do we how do we strike that balance? It's tricky. Do you have any particular thoughts on on how to strike that balance? So I think it comes down to just like facing the fact that a class really needs to be tailored to a specific individual or group versus like trying to span that various degrees of experience. Because it's it's like with your application, if you try to satisfy two parties, then you're probably going to end up dissatisfying both of them. And I'd rather really strongly favor one group and the other group still get some benefit from it, but the other group get a lot of benefit. So I think we're just at that moment now where we're informing ourselves that, hey, we've been trying to straddle a fence right now, but we're actually going to alienate both groups by going this approach. So we'd rather really embrace people who are newer to our spec and testing and make sure that they feel like they have a really good foundation and then also include some more complex subjects that the other engineers may still find engaging as well, or at least helpful in terms of how to then explain these topics to their peers. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. Speaking of testing and the different topics that we're working through to include in the class, I thought it'd be fun to talk about stubs, mocks, and spies, because that's one of the topics that has been heavily requested as we've talked to various individuals. And it's something that even myself, that when I talk to someone that I find myself rambling just a little bit and explaining the difference between all of them, and then it helps to have examples. So for the record, I figured it'd be fun for us to like talk about them and share our understanding and definitions of each, because it's also one of those things where like there's no 
concrete, like one voice that says like, this is what a stub is, or this is what a mock is. Like they all have like varying degrees. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that say this is definitively what it is, but they just differ from the other people that say this is definitively what it is and when you should use it and how you should use it. But yes, it's an interesting topic. That's fair. I'm sure there are many people who agree that they are the authority on the matter. (laughs) But let's start out with the first one. And this is also, I should frame this within RSpec. So that may also help with some of the definitions for anyone that's listening to this and has strong feelings about anything that I say if they disagree. So starting with test doubles, a test double is an object that stands in for a real object. So one of the common examples that I see for test doubles is that you think of them as a Hollywood stunt double. So imagine you're writing a test that sends a welcome email. And as you begin writing that test, the code director, which, you know, is you in this case, yells action and the star studded welcome mailer steps into the light. And at this point, the code director, seeing that the stage is set for a test, yells cut and yells put in the stunt double. So the welcome mailer steps and moves off the stage and the welcome mailer double steps in. So this is our test double. So the welcome mailer double is hardworking and talented, but doesn't get quite the fame and endorsement deals as the welcome mailer. But to be fair, they also don't deal with the notoriety of when they make a mistake. So the test double makes a mistake. It's only known to people that are watching CI or to the code director versus, you know, I mean, if the welcome mailer makes a mistake, someone doesn't get their email. Have I I taken this too far in terms of comparing this to Hollywood? Not nearly far enough. All right, cool, because I'm pretty sure I have more. (laughs) (laughs) I have entire backstories for these people, their origins, (laughs) what their family life was like. Yes. So that covers our test doubles. So then let's talk about stubs versus mocks. And myself being more familiar with RSpec, I think this is one area that it took me a little while to understand the difference between stubbing and mocking and why those terms are confusing. And it's because RSpec doesn't make a distinction between mocks and stubs. They're both just test double objects waiting to be given a job. So a stub is a test double that returns a hard-coded response, and a mock is a test double that listens for specific messages and tells whether that message was or wasn't received. So going back to the code director example, if you want to verify a message was received or have an actor return a particular line, in the first instance, if you want to verify a message, you're going to use a mock. If you want an actor to feed back a specific line, then you're going to use a stub. Up next are verifying doubles as we're continuing on this journey. So the verifying double is a stricter version of a test double. This is the actor that knows exactly what's in their contract and will complain should you ask them to do something that's not specified in their contract. So a verifying double will guarantee what's being called that it is actually defined on that object. So RSpec will check that the methods being stubbed are valid. And then moving on to our final one, the spy. So a spy is a test double that records all of the messages. The use of a spy supports the pattern for a setup exercise verify pattern, as we can skip that setup step that allows a test double to receive a specific message. So instead with a spy, since it records all of the messages, we can create the spy, exercise the test, and then ask the spy if it received a specific message. And that's my my Hollywood drama for Stubbs, Mocks, and Spies, soon to be on Broadway. Is Broadway coming back? Wait, did it go somewhere? <laughs> yeah, there hasn't, there hasn't been Broadway since March. Oh, you can tell I'm clearly reasons, a fan. You know? 
<laughs> the reasons. <laughs> uh, you know, the reasons. Um, unlike basketball, they can't just go to Disney World and dine there. They need the audience. So, But yes, when Broadway comes back, this show will be the first to headline on... I'm out of Broadway words now. <laughs> well, you had more Broadway words than I did, so... I did, but you had more testing words than I did, which are what matter here, so... It's interesting. The the thing you said at the end about spies, I am definitely one of the people who doesn't know any of these by name. I know the RSpec methods and interaction patterns that I've become accustomed to, but I don't know which of the buckets they fall into. And so that definitely clarified some of them for me. Although I think for me, it's still going to be like, I know the ones that I reach for and that's what it is. But I think spies are the ones that I like because I like the setup verify exercise. I'm a big fan of that. And when I see an expect blah to receive up at the top and the, the assertion about that method call is higher up and then you go through and you just get to the end where it's like do the thing and that's the last line of the spec like no no no. what happens after that what matters about that so i'm a big fan of the spy pattern because it allows you to tell the end of the story at the end of the story otherwise it's just a cliffhanger it left you hanging it's a inverted cliffhanger where the you unhang from the cliff at the top oh yeah you you take you jump off the cliff and then yeah i don't know (laughs) i I got nothing (laughs) Yeah, so I, I think based on what you're saying, I am a fan of spies, but I'm I'm still not quite clear when it's uh, mock versus stub. I name them constantly, like I'll name the variable blah stub or blah mock, but I think I just interchange them randomly. Do you have a clear example in your head of one versus the other? Yeah, and I, I've noticed the same thing, even when my writing and reading of code that they're often used interchangeably as to whether it's a stub or a mock. And it's often because a test double could do both. Like you could be doing message verification and having it returned to canned response. So it's pull link double duty. For me, I tend to reach for the mock when I want to verify that a part of my system was called. So I don't actually care about what happens when that was called, but I want to know that that part of my system was communicated with. So sending a mailer might be a really great example. Or if I have a service that I know is supposed to do something, but I don't actually care about the return value, I just need to know that that service was called. As for a stub, that's where my code relies on a value from somewhere else. And so I need that value to be stubbed so then I can continue executing and testing my code. So if my test is collaborating with another object and I need that object to then return a value to me in my test, then that's when I would stub out that value on the other object. And then I could continue with my code to verify that it does the right thing with that response. Is that helpful? Yes, very much so. I feel like Sandy Matz has, um, there's like a little grid in one of her talks where she describes the different types of tests. And there's one like external message verification and something else. Do you know the talk I'm talking about? I don't know that exact talk, but I know what you're talking about, where Sandy Metz recommends that you test incoming query messages by making assertions about what they send back. And you test command messages by making assertions about direct public side effects. Yep, that's the one. That was one of those things that when I saw it, it sort of crystallized a bunch of things that I think I had those ideas forming in my head, but not concretely the way she just sort of sums it up very succinctly. And then I'm like, oh, cool. All right. That's what I do now. I definitely prefer class methods on command objects now because they allow me to stub and mock and interact and verify also completely. And it's this weird thing that I'm like, I don't want to have to stub new and then have new return a double that the double then verifies. I'm like, no, just let me say that the thing's going to get called. It'll be good. I agree. I'm such a fan of the top level class methods for that exact reason, because they're so much easier to then do the message verification or stub out if I do need to return a canned response. I am also lazy and don't like to have to stub out new and then stub out the instance method as well. Just a class level method, please. Just a nice, tidy class method. 
I think you and I, as as we often do, we tend to have very similar opinions on these sort of things. And I think our testing style is very similar because we've worked on projects together a bunch of times. But I'm intrigued when I hear about folks who are very averse to mocking and stubbing. And it's another one of those things where I think I can imagine the pain, especially in systems where there's lots of different objects and things. And it's not convenient to do this, but it's not convenient because pieces of our system are doing too much. Controllers have way too many responsibilities. Methods on model objects have too much. And so it's really hard to test. And this mocking and stubbing seems like a really messy way. So we just, you know, we have a couple big tests that test everything. But I think you and I are both fans of mocking and stubbing and spies and all those fun things because they let us constrain the focus down and really, you know, test a small piece of the system. But I think, again, it also informs how we write the code. Like the thing that we were just saying about class methods, that's a direct response to, like, it's easier to test, but it's also easy to use in code, it turns out. Those are sort of two sides of the same coin. But what are your thoughts when people say, like, no, I hate I hate mocking, I hate spying, I hate doubles, we shouldn't use any of them? I guess my question is always, like, what's the alternative? And in Ruby, the alternative feels like to test all the way through to other objects. And that feels like a, a worse alternative to me. Because then when I do have a change, that change is going to ripple throughout my code and my test. And that's going to be far harder to deal with. So I like the way you framed it in terms that we use stubs and mocks to constrain the system, because then that gives me more confidence that I know if something else is unit tested or has some test, that then I can act with good faith that that part of the system is behaving as desired. So then I can test in more isolation that this behavior that I'm writing also tests works correctly based on the assumption that everything else is working fine. But I also understand the concern that when you mock too far or stub too far, then you've just created too much of like a fake world and you really don't have any confidence that your system is working together. And I I feel like that's a lot of the pushback from mocking and stubbing is where people feel like they've written a bunch of unit tests, but they don't have enough integration tests to then feel confident about deploying their code. So I guess my answer is I agree. I don't love it, but it's the best solution that I have, at least in Rails world. Now, trying to go back to my Elixir days, I remember that we would avoid it more heavily in terms of mocking and subbing because the culture was far more in favor of using more doubles and dependency injection. And I feel like some of that has influenced how I write Ruby, but it's been a while since I've been in Elixir world. And I'd be curious to understand how they approach testing and constraining their system when testing, because I'm pretty sure they still have some mocking libraries, but I don't know if they have any other ways that they try to reduce the amount of mocking in terms of how much I would probably mock in a Rails app. Yeah, it is interesting. We talk about testing a lot, but I think a lot of the things, at least that I say, or that I believe about testing are actually sort of things about RSpec. RSpec informs so much of what I think about testing and is it just provides such a pleasant experience for that that it sort of paved the path and then I'm on that path. But I definitely test very differently when I'm in, say, JavaScript applications. Still trying to figure that one out, actually. Along the lines of most of our world having been shaped in terms of using RSpec, I do remember joining the Scala project that you and I didn't really have any overlap on, but we both worked on. And I remember working within Scala and that also shifted my perspective I don't want to say away from unit tests, but it made me appreciate that you can have more integration tests and let that capture some of the unit tests as well. I think there's also a strong type system there, which that will shift the conversation a lot. Actually, just last week, I chatted with Gary Bernhardt, and we were talking about TypeScript, which doesn't quite have the same guarantees or the level of type systeminess that Scala does. But that definitely, in my experience, whenever there's a type system around, 
that changes the conversation. Like I think you and I have talked about Elm and we just don't really test Elm code directly. We'll do integration tests around the whole thing, but we've not used Elm test much. And Scala, I think you probably test more is my guess, but. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because as I was trying to reach back into my Elixir days, I forget that we also have types that were helping us in Elixir as well. Not to the extent that they help you in Scala, but still we had a way of like stating the types that we expected. So that certainly impacts the types of tests that you feel that you need to write. You had types in an Elixir app? Was that with Dialyzer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Mostly I've heard people being like, yeah, Dialyzer exists, but it's a very hard like gradual annotation layer. It feels closer to Sorbet than other things. So I've not talked with someone who's used Dialyzer and been like, yeah, it was great. So I guess I now have. It's been many years since <laughs> I've used it. So I'm afraid my information's pretty rusty, but I remember it being a positive experience and helpful. I can't remember how consistent we were about adding types. That's the part that's blurry for me, but I feel like it's something that we did use and that I found favorable. The gradual type annotation stuff is always really interesting. Like Scala is a language where the type system's just there. It's just doing its thing and Elm similarly, but TypeScript is, you know, you're adding it on after the fact to a language that doesn't have it. And Sorbet, I've yet to really get Sorbet running, but I'm really interested in, in what will that feel like. Or I think Ruby 3 is supposed to have types natively, but that, I think that's true. I'm not sure. I think it's been talked about back and forth, but it's very much Matt's being like, uh, yeah, we'll have types, but you know, in a Ruby way. And I'm like, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> what even are we doing here? Uh, on the fly types. But yeah, interestingly, the app that I'm working on right now, where I've just added some JavaScript stuff in the front and added more JavaScript behavior. I did not use TypeScript initially just because it was one more thing to configure and thing to set up. And I'm mostly writing these little views in Svelte, so I didn't feel like I needed it. And I shipped a bug to production immediately that was just a dumb called a function that didn't exist on a thing or like passed the wrong arguments. It was like trivial for TypeScript to cover. I'm like, well, I brought that one on myself. This was solvable. Although Svelte only recently got TypeScript support, recently being in like the last year. But it's just such a different project that it's sort of hard to bring it into that world. And they had to work with the TypeScript team is my understanding there. And now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Remote Works, a podcast that tells extraordinary stories of teams that made the shift to working remotely. This season, you'll hear how the pandemic didn't slow down Aston Martin Red Bull racing drivers and their teams. How two women working in a tiny trapper's cabin in the Arctic are dodging polar bears while fighting climate change. And the story of digital nomads working from the beach in Barbados, Bali, and beyond. But it's not just stories about remote work. Each episode is full of insight and advice you can apply to your work and your team. Distributed work brings challenges, but it also represents opportunity. That's what Remote Works is all about, helping you find new ways to work, collaborate, and discover new possibilities. We get a sneak preview of Season 2 of Remote Works, and we love the high immersive production values and engaging narration. Search for Remote Works anywhere you listen to podcasts, and we'll include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Remote Works for their support. One last question I have while we're on the topic of testing, uh, sort of particular to the Rails world, but I think it can possibly apply outside. What types of tests do you actually write? So there's, I don't know, seven or eight different types. So there's like model specs and view specs and controller, or I guess they're requests now. And then there's feature. Now system. System. Is that different than feature? Oh, feature is now system. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't think I ever, I, that was one where I was just like, no, I'm not doing it. And I still call them feature <laughs> specs. Uh <laughs> I also call them feature specs. Yep. Yeah. You can pry my feature specs from my cold dead hands or I'll just give up someday. It'll be fine. But yeah, I, like view specs are probably the most interesting one in my mind. I like them a good amount, but I find that a lot of people don't. So I'm interested specifically about view specs, but more generally, are there types of specs that you do or do not write in the context of a Rails app? I think that view specs are terrible. 
I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a very good liar. <laughs> yeah, you're not. Especially because I can see you. The people at home might have been like, oh, cliffhanger. But no, not at all. <laughs> All right. Uh, ambiguous question territory. Where to begin? Uh, so in terms of tests that I tend to write, I usually strive for the outside in approach. So I really favor writing a feature or system level spec first, because then it helps me think about like, what is the entry point for this code? And then if this code is being surfaced up to like a UI layer, then how is a user going to interact with this code? It also just serves as like a guideline for me in terms of like, I have this goal that I want to achieve, even if all of it's made up and none of it correlates with any real code. I just at least know where I'm headed. And so I use it as like a very helpful bookmark. So feature specs, system specs are something that I certainly use. Uh, model specs, I use those as well. Testing validations, testing methods that exist on the model as well. Request specs, I haven't used those lately in terms of like the, the code bases that I've been working with. We just haven't had as heavy of a need for request specs, but I'm a big fan and I'll reach for request specs. It may be more interesting to talk about tests that we don't write. I'm tr- mm. cause I'm feeling like I'm just listing like all the different types of tests <laughs> and I'm like, check. Yep. I use that one. <laughs> well, I'm intrigued because I, I don't know that I have one that I don't write. Yeah. Do you have one? Like, do you write view specs? Back to my original question. (laughs) (laughs) Now back to the heart of the question. I do write view specs. I am a big fan of view specs because I'm also a big fan of testing at what I consider like the right layer of abstraction in terms of if I'm testing that a particular text shows up, then maybe it makes sense to drive that from a integration or feature level spec from a user's perspective. But let's say there's an if statement in my view, and given this condition, then some different text shows up. That is not something that I want to use a higher level, more expensive test to drive through. Like I don't really need a user to click through and confirm that like, well, if I do this and this different text shows up. So that's something that I really like to push down into a view spec because that's going to be faster and more focused. So I'm a really big fan of view specs just because they keep my feature specs focused on the happy pass and also faster because I'm I'm not slowing down my feature specs. Yep, pretty much identical for me. The note that you made there about like speed is a consideration. I definitely am careful and I weigh the value of each feature spec because they do add so much time to the runtime of the whole test suite. But I will say on the flip side of that for me, I used to be more of a proponent of avoiding hitting the database. And now I'm like, nah, just hit the database as much as you want with the exception that in view specs, I can often get away with a build stubbed or something like that because I just care like, here's an object with some data, what renders on the screen. But basically the rest of the time, I'm going to go through the database, especially I think I've been pushing more and more stuff into the database. So hitting the database feels reasonable because it's not just like the place where we put data. It is another layer at which our system is defined, at least in the way that I've been working. And I, I like that. I want more of that. So I'm hitting the database a bunch. Oh, I guess there's probably one spec I'm trying to think of some group that I don't use. And that's probably routing specs. Oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. I believe it is. And even just thinking of it, yeah, I couldn't really tell you what they're used for, but I feel like routing specs is something that I've heard before. And that's not something that I've ever written. My guess is if I had a bunch of complex routing constraints, then maybe uh, like I've used clearances, admin routing constraint to say only admins can see these routes or access these routes and constraining it at that level so that every controller doesn't have to do that. But even then, I think I'd still go through the request specs or uh, otherwise. So yeah, routing specs probably don't write those. Maybe. I don't know. I I, I could see the reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think back. I feel like kind of circling all the way back to the um, discussion we were having earlier where you were testing shifting over the canonical host for the application. 
I feel like there was a time that you and I were working on a project where I needed to do something similar. It w- maybe it wasn't so much shifting domains, but it was just rewriting like one path and forwarding it to another. And that was something that we dropped into rack rewrite or something like that to use. And then we did write a test that confirmed that like a given this path, it actually forwards it to another path. So I think I just proved myself wrong. And I guess if that is a route spec, then yes, I have written a route spec, but they're very rare. I don't think those would be route spec, or at least that's not implemented in the routing layer, like Rails's routing layer. Although I feel like now I'm actually just fully in the pedantic space of like, well, actually. Um, <laughs> but I, I think of it in terms of like, what affordances does our spec give me when I'm writing this type of spec? Like when you write a request spec, get is a method that is available at the top level that has, you know, takes a path and then headers and whatever. And that's not available if you're in a model spec. And so I don't know what route specs actually have. And maybe that would be a place to write a rack rewrite sort of thing. I actually might need to look at that because now I'm writing those. <laughs> Never mind. I don't know anything. <laughs> But I'll say it's actually very relevant to the thing that we were talking about (laughs) earlier. So since we have the internet in front of us, I looked it up and we have, I guess it's more specific to our spec, which is again, our world's being shaped by our spec versus Rails because they have routing specs defined as where you set, of course, the type to routing. And they have an expectation that if you have like a Git and then a particular like URL path, and then they have an expectation that you expect it to route to a specific controller with these params. So it looks like a very low level, like detailed test of like, if I send you this URL, then you're going to break it up accordingly and hit the correct controller and forward the params along correctly. Hmm. It feels perhaps like we're coupling to implementation details. So my initial inclination would be to be like, I don't know about that. But if I had a complex uh, like path matching thing like we only accept hex codes as the id param here and so i've written a routing constraint param globber i don't actually know what the code would do but one of those then maybe this is a place to write the test for that but again eh, probably just a request spec at the end of the day yeah i feel like a request spec would cover my needs in that case it's one of those things where like the fewer magic types of specs probably the better and most of the time, what I'm trying to do is pull logic out into specific objects. So like if I have lots of complicated query logic in a controller, I'm going to pull that out into a query object. Query object's not really a thing. It's not like a special thing. It's just an object that encapsulates the idea of a query or a form or other types of objects like that. But they're really just, you know, Ruby objects that do something. And so those are the ones where testing is great. But those aren't a specific type of RSpec test. They're just a test as far as I understand it. I love query objects. They're special to me. <laughs> They are both nothing and deeply special to us. Exactly. You, you get it. But I think with that, we have covered a, a whole world of testing today and lots of opinions and, and also some factual basis, which is good. So with that, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Chris Toomey. Happy birthday to you. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.